0: behind the knife the surgery podcast where we take a behind the scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field
1: All right, this is Jason Bingham and Wu Do from Behind the Knife. We're at the 13th Annual Academic Surgical Congress 2018 in Jacksonville, Florida. This is day two of the conference, and it just continues to get better. Uh, Some really great talks this morning. We're able to sit down with some wonderful people today. So, Wu, uh, what's the lineup for today? Yeah, Jason, we're super
2: excited to share our lineup for you. Um, So today we talked to uh, Dr. Taylor Rial. She's the SUS president. We talked about the president's experience, the role of the surgeon-scientist, uh, we then spoke with Dr. Jeff Matthews uh, for the chair's perspective and do's and don'ts of interviewing, and we actually got an answer to the age-old question, uh, what's the correct response to the question, what is your biggest weakness? Uh, we then talked to Dr. Heather Yo uh, about clinical outcomes research, and finally we spoke with Dr. Herbert Chen about changing organizational culture.
1: Uh, so we hope you guys are enjoying this series from the ASC. We want to encourage you, if you do have a chance next year, definitely uh, try to attend this meeting. And even more so, uh, watch for that call of abstracts and submit an abstract to this, abstract to this meeting next year. Uh, be sure to subscribe to our mailing list if you haven't. Go on our website, and uh, we'll also put a link to that in our show notes. Uh, and follow us on Twitter, at Behind the Knife. Uh, so without further ado, here is Dr. Taylor Rial. Okay, Jason Wu here at uh, the ASC meeting 2018. We are uh, privileged to be able to sit down with Dr. Taylor Rial, uh, the current president of the Society of University Surgeons. Uh, she's the surgical oncologist. She's the acting chair of the Department of Surgery and the chief of the Division of General and Surgical Oncology at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. Uh, she's also a professional leadership and life coach. Um, Dr. Rial, thank you for sitting down with us.
3: Thank you. It's great uh, to have an opportunity to do it again.
1: <laughs> yeah. If you, everybody remember, I think it was March of last year, we have a full episode with Dr. Rial, so uh, everybody should uh, go check that out if they haven't listened to it. It's a fantastic episode. Um, so, jump right into it. First off, we've been hearing great things. Everybody's had having an amazing time at the conference this year. Um, I was wondering if you could just share with us a little bit of your experience about uh, what it's like to be the president of, of the SUS and...
3: It's, you know, it's a wonderful opportunity to be the president of the organization, but actually the more important thing is the years that lead up to that. You know, so it's it's all the involvement in the council. And when I think of the Society of University Surgeons and the Association of, for Academic Surgery, it's really it's about friendship and mentorship and support. And to me, this is just sort of the culmination of that. I do want to shout out to... Uh, Becky White and to Eugene Kim, who created the program, has um, just been outstanding programming. My only regret is that I couldn't get to see more of it, yeah. <laughs> you know, because I'm running around and, uh, I, you know, there's just too many places I'd like to be, uh, to see everything. But um, it's been a great experience. It was uh, very special for me to have my family and my husband here because they don't very often get to see this side of it. and right. uh, um. So it was really interesting to see their reaction to to that kind of thing, and um, and I was really nervous leading all right up to my presidential address. But once I get up there, I really enjoyed that moment and told a fairly personal story. And I thought it was received like I hoped it would be. And uh, it's been a great meeting.
1: Yeah, I've heard I've heard everybody's had nothing but good things to say about the presidential address. I think it just it blew people away, um, and. Wasn't something that people I think are used to hearing, uh, so it caught, it caught. It was it was surprising to a lot of people, but a pleasant surprise. So, uh, <laughs> which
3: is what made me nervous. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so, can you walk. So, how did all this happen? Like, if briefly walk us your road to the presidency. How did how did how did that happen?
3: It's really interesting. You know, I, I I joke about it, but you know, I was born and bred to be an academic surgeon. You know, I trained at Hopkins. That was the model and. I joined the AAS immediately, and um, and had wonderful opportunities in the leadership of the AAS, and it was just a natural progression to join the SUS. I would have never considered not doing it, and I've been really lucky along the way to have you know mentors and sponsors who put me up to you know provide opportunities. Day Chung invited me to a council meeting. I got to sit on the council as the membership chair, and and uh, you know honestly. I didn't think I would ever get to be president of the Society of University yeah. Surgeons and um and especially 4 years ago, I you know, sort of went through a lot of the life changes that I talked about and I hadn't even I'd sort of even given that idea up and it's funny now that I, I've I let, let go of a lot of those things. It's like like I don't have to be the president of the SUS. I don't have to be a surgical chair. And then as soon as you let go of those things, they sort of come to you in really unusual ways. <laughs> <Fascinating>. <laughs> just said the same thing when I went to Arizona. I'm like, I just want to be a division chief. I don't want to be a chair. And then next thing I know, I'm the acting chair. Yeah,
2: that's awesome. Uh, So apart from getting involved early, uh, what key tip or or pointer do you have to all the residents out there who are listening uh, but couldn't make it to this conference? What can they do besides getting involved early to make sure they have a good career in academic surgery?
3: not get involved but come here you know and and meet people and talk to people and and ask for those opportunities you know there's so many people out there and um and honestly the ones who get opportunities are ones who come and talk to me and say hey you know i really want to be involved and it's a, uh, I want to get everybody involved but i don't necessarily know who everybody is and so come and, and meet the leadership and if you don't know how to get involved ask how to get involved
1: I think that's one thing that's uh, struck me about uh, the society and and this conference is how approachable everybody is. Like you mentioned, you know, Daichung. Funny enough, we were just hanging out with Chung last night and he just, you'd run into people. Day's amazing. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, It's all these amazing people and you wouldn't think you had the opportunity to, to, uh, you know, really get to know, but everybody's just so approachable and it's such a, you know, inclusive meeting that... Can't stress it enough. I, I think every at every level, but especially like junior staff and residents, should come to this meeting and, and get involved. So you're
2: a leader in surgical oncology, and one thing that we've just been really curious about, uh, and we've been asking a lot of people this is, what's one thing that's like really hyped up right now? Uh, you don't know where it's going to go, but what's like the big unanswered question right now that you think might be answered in the next five to ten years?
3: I think it might be answered in the next five to 10 years. Like when I think about my field or I think about pancreatic cancer, you know, I feel like we're we're just starting to scratch the surface. You know, Herb Zay gave an amazing talk yesterday yeah. just about this incredible body of work that he's done in pancreatic cancer. And I think he makes a really good point that as surgeons, you know, we're making small changes that make a difference. But I think the big differences are going to come in chemotherapy. You know, when I think about it, I feel like breast cancer, there'll probably be a day where we don't operate on breast cancer, hmm. and I hope that there'll be a day when we don't operate on pancreas cancer. You know, it, that we have better chemo that doesn't just select the patients that might do a little better, but actually treats the disease, and it'll change the whole paradigm uh, for how we treat pancreatic cancer.
1: What's the role of the surgeon in that? You know, you think about the surgeon scientist in developing these these non-surgical therapies. Um, is there a role for us? Is that something we should be actively pursuing?
3: I think it is. I think, you know, it's really important. You know, we've seen a shift at at the Academic Surgical Congress and clinical and outcomes research. And that certainly was my, you know, my research field. But I think it's really important for surgeons to be involved in the basic science. And I think what Dr. Sipple said in her address is like, if we go every day to the clinic and see those patients and say, what, what is it that I can't tell that patient? What is it that the patient doesn't know? Then it's our obligation to answer those questions and yeah. to be involved in the research, the basic science, the clinical questions, whatever that is. And more and more, we're moving away from departments and being surgeons to working in service lines with, yeah. with a whole team of people. And, and we are answering the question. We as a, that multidisciplinary group and not as a surgeon or an oncologist.
1: Uh, on the flip side of that, so what's one thing that uh, in five, ten years you think we'll look back on and say, that was crazy?
3: It's funny. You know, I I tease Dr. Zay. I tell him, you know, not, I'm, I'm a maximally invasive surgeon. But, um, you know, probably the nodes thing. I said every time I think about that, I'm like, you're going to take out my gallbladder through where? You know, <laughs> I don't know about that. For me, I'd be like, you know what? Just do it with the four little incisions. We're all good. Right. So okay. I could be wrong. <laughs>
1: I was worried you were going to say robotics. But so hey,
3: you know. look, I don't have a lot of vision. Um, so when I was uh, about 15, I went over to my friend's house and they had gotten America Online. It's yeah. like the first time I had been exposed <laughs> to the internet, and then and I remember like looking at it. I'm like, well, why would I want that? You know? And they're like, well, you you look stuff up. I'm like, well, what would I look up? You know? So I didn't have a lot of vision about that because <laughs> now I can't. Two minutes, I can't have no internet right, access right, right. or I don't know what to do. So I'm probably not the right person to ask. <laughs>
1: Uh, all right. Well, so if uh, listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Twitter, your, your website? Yep.
3: They get, uh, I think my Twitter handle is at Taylor Ryle. I look occasionally, although that's how you found me. And uh, my, my, my website at, at University of Arizona, um, my business website is also available. And um, my email is a uh, T-S-R-I-A-L-L at surgery.arizona.edu.
1: And uh, at uh, your website is uh, tailorsuccesscoaching dot com. Is, mm-hmm. is that right? And uh, I'd encourage people to go check that out. It's really fascinating. Uh, and listen to the podcast that we did last year where we talked a little bit more about that. It's a it's a really uh, I'm ama- I don't know where you find the time to do that on top of everything else. It's, it's amazing.
3: I love it. So it makes it easy.
1: All right, Doctor Ryle. Thank you for uh, thank you for your time. Thank you. Okay, back at ASC 2018, we're here with uh, Dr. Jeff Matthews. Dr. Matthews is the chair of the Department of Surgery at the University of Chicago. Um, He's an expert in the surgical treatment of chronic pancreatitis um, and complex biliary reconstruction and a leader in the field of uh, islet cell transplantation. Dr. Matthews, thank you for being here with us today. Thanks a lot, Jason. So uh, I, I, we were just talking. Unfortunately, uh, Wu and I didn't get into town last night, and we we missed we, we missed your talk at the uh, professional development course.
4: No, this is actually the mid-career. That's right. Yeah, professional development course. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So if you if you could just tell us a little bit about you know what that course is, what it entails, and then uh, maybe we can go into a little bit of kind of high points of, of what your talk was.
4: Sure. Well, the mid-career uh, professional development course, or whatever the title is, something <laughs> like that, um, has been going on for a number of years now. Um, I don't remember if it was uh, Rebecca Minter that introduced it, but uh, there, I think the idea of having a, a, a mid-career a uh, course for faculty that had been maybe five, eight, ten years on faculty and trying to figure out what was next in their academic career. Uh, that idea surfaced and uh, that became that course. I mean, for many years before Academic Surgical Congress merged the Association for Academic Surgery and the Society for University Surgeons annual Mm -hmm. meetings. There had been courses for young investigators, courses for, you know, how to get a job and these kinds of things. But there really had been relatively limited attention paid to the needs of mid-career faculty and people who might be thinking about leadership opportunities, how to go about getting leadership opportunities, what the nuts and bolts of that was like, how to, how to prepare for, for leadership roles and so forth. And so I think that course came out of that.
1: And it's uh, typically held, uh, you know, the day or two before the actual uh, ASC conference starts. Is that usual? That's
4: been uh, pretty typical. I think sometimes the courses were appended to the American College of Surgeons annual meeting and, you know, I can't remember, but they've been doing these uh, courses for a while now. And, uh, um, you know, it's it's good for people who can come in a day or two before and uh, gives them some insight maybe.
2: So our understanding is that within this broader course, you gave a specific lesson on the interview process, uh, specifically the chair's perspective. Could you tell us more about this?
4: Absolutely, Wu. Uh, the, uh, the course it, it itself had a lot of different uh, segments to it. One was sort of how do you weigh your opportunities, and there were uh, uh, sections about how to manage change and lead change and so forth. I was on a panel uh, with two other speakers with, uh, with, uh, uh, Doug Tyler and Nipun Merchant. And the three of us talked about various perspectives on interviewing for leadership positions. Uh, Dr. Tyler talked about, uh, how do you prepare for an interview? How do you get ready for it? Uh, uh Nipun Merchant, uh, spoke about, uh, uh, the role of a search uh, firm or a search committee uh, in this and what they were looking for. And I was sandwiched in the middle there to talk about the, give the chair's perspective. And we I would say that we actually uh, spoke on many of the similar themes and amplified many of the similar themes, but just from slightly different perspectives. As a chair, I'm always involved in uh, searches for Leaders in my own department, for leaders at my medical center, say for other chairs, for people who might be my boss, dean searches or uh, hospital president searches, these sorts of things. And so you get a, um, a perspective on uh, how interviews should go, things to look for uh, when you're evaluating candidates uh, and uh, maybe some uh Red flags to know when somebody's maybe not the right fit for the job. And so we had a good discussion about some of the do's and don'ts and then some of the practical aspects of how do these interviews actually even happen? We took it from the airport interview, which is one kind of interview to first visits to a campus and then to subsequent visits. And how does that, you know, what, what happens at each stage?
1: So uh, if you could, just kind of highlight what are some of those big those big do's and what are some of those big don'ts? Just we have listeners at all points in their career, and I'm sure some of them are out there kind of trying to navigate this interview process
4: sure well i i, uh, I told the story when I was uh Uh, You know, in my generation, when you went to the doctor's office in the waiting area, there were these scholastic magazines for the for the kids to read there. And in there, there was the Goofus and Gallant cartoon, which always described the two different kids, Goofus and Gallant, who did Goofus, who did all the wrong things and Gallant, who did all the right things. So we sort of framed the discussion around Goofus and Gallant in the uh, interview process uh and uh some of the goofest things uh, in interviews particularly for leadership positions would be uh for example uh during the course of an interview uh saying something that was perhaps uh directly disparaging of a colleague or of the institution that you were already at or that could be indirectly indicated as that so so speaking bad about a current situation yeah. is not really very attractive when you're looking for the new situation uh we would uh, other things that goofus might do uh, in a in an interview setting uh is try to talk about how much they want to get paid or what the package was going to look like or they might be very focused on themselves and They're interviewing for a leadership position, but they're really focused on what it means to them. And I've had, as a chair interviewing people, I've had some remarkable experiences. I had somebody who came to interview for a leadership position uh, who, uh, during the course of the first interview with me, said that one of the real interesting reasons that – they were thinking about moving to Chicago was they could probably get a better house. and That just didn't fit with what I was looking for, that that wasn't going to be the right motivator for the leadership position I was looking for. And then the gallant side is to really focus in on the opposite of that, focusing in on understanding the leadership role, understanding the environment and expressing passion for the position that you might be taking and Being very realistic and grounded uh, in your own strengths and weaknesses—that usually comes across very well in an interview setting. Somebody who really has self-awareness.
1: so I've always wondered, what is the right answer to what is your greatest weakness?
4: Well, that's a good. There's no right answer to the question. (laughs) What's the wrong ones? Yeah, there are wrong ones. The wrong ones, I think, are to try to uh, frame. The weakness as actually a strength and really not a non-answer to the question. You know, my greatest weak my greatest weakness is that I just care too much. Right. My greatest weakness is I just I, I work too hard and I'm a perfectionist, and that sort of lack of self insight is not very helpful. I think when you get a question like that, the intent of the question is to uh, be honest about w- what your gaps are and what you do to overcome them. And so it's really how you handle that. Uh, so let's say you are uh, uh, a perfectionist and so you don't tend to delegate very well. Well, what steps have you taken to try to delegate better and try to learn to overcome that kind of thing? Or if you're interviewing for a – Say you're looking at a uh, division chief position and you might be very – and I often have and I find it very refreshing when a, uh, a potential candidate comes and says, look, I'm really ambitious and excited about program building but I don't have a lot of grounding in financials and spreadsheets and so I, w- I need to learn that. So I'm interested in taking some courses. I'm not, my first reaction is great. We can do that. That's, yeah. that's the easy stuff to teach. But – you know, not being able to 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 um, articulate what everybody's got gaps, everybody's got areas that they need to improve or that they want to learn, and so just being straightforward about that is the best approach.
2: Now, are there other uh, favorite questions you have? Other questions that allow you to gain similar insight into what the person is thinking?
4: Well, it, that's a good question. The the w- w- we spoke in the section about uh, the difference between a. Uh, uh, one-on-one interview and the typical airport interview. When you're in an airport interview, group interview session, there's often scripted questions, and there are certain questions that you just have to be prepared for. Um, and those questions can be very helpful to understand somebody's motivations and what they do. So, you know, describe a leadership challenge that you faced and how you solved it. Uh, describe some time that you failed and how did what did you learn from that? You know, these kinds of questions are are good questions. Again, at getting at the self awareness, um, I'll often ask a question like, "What do, what do you think your first year would be like in this position?" To try to get a sense as to how somebody thinks strategically. Uh, do they listen or do they sort of bull in a China shop, know what they want to do, uh, you know, irrespective of what the actual institution or culture is? So I think those kinds of questions can be helpful in discriminating.
1: Can you think of any like examples that just blew you away, like that are just awesome, like something you weren't expecting?
4: Yeah, I can think of some at the faculty yeah. level. I think the uh, amazing experiences that I've had is when I've understood somebody's passion and motivation for why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, interviewing a potential faculty member for a position in a certain disease, and I don't want to say what the disease was because I don't want to give a, sort of sort of laid on what the issue was, but realizing that they actually had a person. Personal connection to to that disease uh, was uh, fascinating to hear how that drove them and how Mm -hmm. their uh, how their career came to be focused on that almost by accident uh, but because of uh, being personally affected by it Uh, you know it's just uh, amazing and when you find something like that that really uh, binds you uh, to the to the mission it's great
1: are there any you know kind of basic rules of etiquette that everybody should know like you know we show up you know this at this time. This early, good idea
4: to show up on time. Yeah. And showing up on time means you're there five minutes early. Right. But uh, aside from the obvious ones about coming, you know, you know, so be sober. on time and groomed yeah. and be sober and yeah. that sort of thing, yeah. those are always good starting points. <laughs> um, I, I would say that the the among the best bits of advice I could give is do your homework. Yeah. Uh, there is – you should know who you're going to interview with and know something about them, um, particularly early on in the process if you're looking at a, a chief job or a chair job or, or a dean's job um, I, and you're going to be interviewing one of these group interviews. You really ought to know who's interviewing you because it's you, It's often heavy hitters that are there and it's probably a good idea to be able to, to uh, address them and know something about them. That works – that's That's sort of a magic way to create a, an early bond, but even if you're looking at a faculty position uh, or an early leadership position, knowing something about the institution, and you can you don't have to do any. Uh, secret digging. You just go on this thing called the internet. And, uh, I'm told that on the internet, you can find publicly available information. (laughs) You can go to the website of the hospital or the university and find what, you know, what makes the university tick? What makes the university proud? What are the big programs that are there? Who are some of the key faculty there? And then it allows you to have a conversation that suggests that, uh, you're willing to learn and you are learning about the institution and the city and and the the uh the place that you might be moving to uh but uh also gives you uh, a a sense of the of the culture of the place and and then you know allows you to have a more tangible discussion
1: what about uh, interview follow-up? Like is a handwritten letter versus an email, is that, does that matter? I don't think a
4: handwritten versus email matters. I think the um, what you need to remember is that if you send an email to me thanking me for for the, the meeting, the first thing that I do is forward it to some of the other people on the search committee. So make it a different email that you send to the other <laughs> person. That's, if we all send the same emails, you, you're going to yeah. go, well, that was a little – bit of a form letter. But if you yeah. can remember what you spoke about with each person and say, you know, hey, I really enjoyed our conversation about, yeah. uh, about blues music right. and uh, hope to connect with you, uh, you know, then that's a little personal. Um, and I, I think it's important to give a, a sense in that thank you letter briefly uh, about your continued interest uh, and enthusiasm for the, for the position
1: at least perfectly the blues music thing perfectly into my next question is, is how important is personality or being personable and kind of jiving, you know, with the person you're interviewing.
4: That's an interesting question. Also, I, uh, in the course, I uh, had a slide where I spoke about what am I looking for? And among the things I'm looking for is whether I can relate to the person and whether I can connect with the person. I look for whether they make eye contact, for example. Mm-hmm. I try to get a sense as to how, what they're, what sort of personality type they are, introvert, extrovert kind of thing. And you don't have to be an extrovert to be a, a great leader. In fact, many of the best leaders are introverts, but I try to get a sense of connection um i try to find out um how well they uh connect to the field that they represent or to the position that they're mm-hmm. that they that they uh are are taking for example if i was uh, recruiting a chief of neurosurgery i would be very interested uh, to, uh, uh, I, I would want to know that they have a network within neurosurgery, that they're known among neurosurgeons, that they're involved in the right organizations that they present. So because this person's probably going to have to recruit and I want to get a sense as to do they, do they have the connections that are needed to to do the job or do they have the a vision for where the field is going? And so I'll often ask them, you know, what's happening in in, you know, Neurologic oncology and what are the big things that are going to be on the horizon in the next five years and try to get a sense as to where, where they see things going. So
1: are there any absolute deal breakers? Like if if you see this, you know that this just isn't going to work out.
4: I'm not sure there are any, any single deal breakers. I mean, there's always, you know, anecdotes of, you know, crazy things people have done on interviews. You know, one of the things that I give advice to people about is to remember that you're always being evaluated. And I have had situations where the person who was interviewing was led around by, say, an assistant in the department, or, or, uh, or, uh, or uh, uh, another staff person in the department, and they were rude to the staff person, and that got back to me. That's sort of a deal breaker right there. Somebody who's uh, who's not nice to the staff is not somebody. I don't care what their qualifications are. So those might be red flags sure. that that would uh, say things. But I, I think uh, finding out during the course of the interview what the person's true motivation for leaving is. Um and for looking at the position, sometimes you can get the sense that it's really not the right reason. They'll tell you, oh well, uh you know, I want to get this job because I want to get the next job. You yeah. know, this is gonna be a good stepping stone for me. Uh yeah. <laughs> that maybe keep that one inside your head. You know, it's like you know I can hear that, don't you?
1: I also wanted to ask you, we just got done talking to uh Jamie Coleman about uh social media presence uh for physicians and surgeons. Uh, When you're interviewing, when you're entertaining uh, an applicant, do you look at their social media and does that affect? I
4: I absolutely 100% should, but I never do. (laughs) (laughs) I just, uh, I'm just not that clever.
1: All right. Uh, and uh, one last question. I wouldn't. I, wouldn't I, I can't get you out of here without asking you something about music cause I know you're a huge music fan. So okay. either either a new band that you're into or a recent concert you went to that was just <laughs> phenomenal.
4: Um, new bands that I'm into. Well, let's see. I'm very excited for uh, the new Frank Turner record that's coming out. I just saw him recently in Chicago and he is uh, coming back to Chicago in a couple of months. So always excited about him. If you haven't seen him, best live act. Really? Absolutely. I'm not I, familiar with Frank Turner. You got him up. You oh, got okay. him. Got to look up Frank Turner and the Sleeping Souls. Frank I Turner saw him says... at Lollapalooza a couple of years ago. It's the best set I've ever seen at Lollapalooza and I've been many, many years and now, I've, now I'm a groupie. He's incredible.
1: <laughs> awesome. All right. I'll definitely check it out because I definitely respect, I respect your medical opinion and I definitely respect your musical opinion as well. So uh, Dr. Matthews, uh, thank you for being with us on Behind the Knife. Thanks. A pleasure. Okay, this is Wu and Jason. We're back at uh, ASC 2018 in Jacksonville, Florida. We are here with uh, Dr. Heather Yeo. She is the Nanette Leitman Clinical Scholar in Healthcare Policy and Research and Clinical Evaluation. She's an assistant professor of surgery at Weill Cornell Medical College, and she is the co-chair of communications for the Association of Women Surgeons. Dr. Yeo, thank you for being with us today.
5: Thanks so much for having me. Glad I could join you.
1: Uh, so just to jump right into it why why ASC? Uh, why do you come to this meeting? What do you get out of it? Um, and what have been your impressions so far this year?
5: So I've been a pretty active of AAS now for several years, and I think that um, it's just a really good organization that I think is a platform for young um, researchers to kind of who are interested in surgical care, uh, whether or not it's outcomes, education, or basic science. I think that um, they've done a lot just to kind of help the growth of young surgeons, and I think it's a great organization. I have a research team of um, now four research residents and two medical students, and It's a, it's a really good meeting for them because I think there's amazing network all along with the, with the joint of AAS and SUS. Mm -hmm. I think it gives them the opportunity to see people kind of up the entire hierarchy and also, um, gives them the opportunity to kind of present in a really, um, non-threatening meeting where I think that there's certainly challenges to research methodology and to, and there are high standards, but it's in a kind of collaborative way. Right.
1: That's uh, that's what every almost every guest we've had on has said almost that exact thing. It's quite amazing. So if there's anybody out there, I don't, we don't need to say it again. But uh, especially residents, junior staff out there, there's no excuse. 2019, get your abstracts in. It's a great it's a great meeting to come to. Okay, well, uh, is there anything, been? I know you were moderating a session this morning. Anything interesting come out of that or anything? That's yeah, a- I mean,
5: we so we had a session, the colorectal plenary session. It was a great uh, group of abstracts. We had um, everything from peritoneal malignancies to topics about ARS protocols, um, some kind of continuation on things that we're familiar with uh, that – you know, volumes matter in surgical technique. ARS protocols are now improving the quality of care that we have for patients. Um, and then there's some also, one of the things that I mentioned earlier is I think that it's a, the kind of one of the cool things about this meeting is that there are a lot of sound research methodologists here. And so you get to see kind of some novel use of different statistical methods. So some predictive modeling, yeah. um, The group out of Duke has done some interesting work with restrictive cubic splines and so they did a colorectal paper on that today. So it was kind of, it's always, it's always kind of fun to. One of the cool things about uh, clinical research is that there's always new methodologies, um, and it's interesting to kind of take those from one um, clinical scenario to another and see if we can learn from each other across specialty. That's the other thing that I really like about the Academic Surgical Congress is Mm -hmm. the multidisciplinary nature of it. Um, I get to see colleagues from residency that I don't get to see at my surgical oncology meetings because they're pediatric surgeons. Um, So it's kind of one of the other benefits of ASC. That's that's,
1: that's an interesting. I guess I never really thought about it. I, I guess we just, I've done that before where you, you see a presentation and you're like, oh, I didn't think about analyzing something in that way. And that's um, that, that's something I need to be more intentional about, I think.
5: It's actually, think. it's one of my favorite things about going to academic conferences. Um, I always come home from a conference being like, oh, I've got 10 new great ideas for projects. And right. it's just thinking about things in a slightly different way. I um, At Cornell, we have a research group that does comparative effectiveness research, and it's Every, it's a wide range of people, so it's everyone from the pediatric surgeons to our trauma surgeons, and I also invite some statisticians and health policy folks, yeah. because I think there's a lot to be learned from research uh, in other specialties.
2: So without disclosing too many of your trade secrets, is there one burning question, research question that came out of today's session that you know, you're now reinvigorated by?
5: Um, I wouldn't say from necessarily in particular today's session. We're working on a, a number of uh, projects. Probably one of the most interesting things is, so I've been a health service researcher now. I started uh, doing health services research in kind of the mid-2000s. And um, I think that a lot has changed in big data. Um, I think that what you used to be able to, what we used to do, simple, just logistic regression is not, um, is not kind of creative enough anymore. I think that there are so many people are starting to be able to use more complex statistical methods and kind of think outside the box. And I think that for health service research in particular, if you want to be on the cutting edge, you actually need to think about we know we can find, create a predictive model for something, but the next step is really how do we then integrate that? How do we implement that to change patient care? So our group is trying to do a lot more uh, prospective work um, because we've spent a lot of time saying, okay, these are risk factors. So now we're trying to think about yeah. interventions. And um, I, I, Actually, one of the main projects that I work on now is um, developing mobile health apps to track patients in the perioperative period so we can improve their care because we're getting patient-reported measures all the time.
1: Oh, listen, talk to me a little bit more about that. So so we app that...
5: Yeah, we've worked with... Uh, Cornell has a tech campus, mm-hmm. um, and we worked with them originally, um, and then I received some grant funding through the Damon Runyon Cancer Foundation. So we're in the middle of a randomized trial. Um, we have a, a patient app that tracks patients uh, 30 days post-discharge. It actually starts pre-op. We get pre-op baseline data, so we get pre-op mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we track them in the perioperative period. There's a number of patient-reported outcomes, but we also passively track motion steps. Wow. Um, and then we have some push reminders. So the day before surgery, it says, hey, surgery's tomorrow. Have you started your bowel prep yet? Yeah. Um, do you have any questions? Um, and it's It also has certain alerts that are triggered if they fill out their reported measures and are in kind of our outside normal range. Um, It'll trigger me, the PI, and anyone else on their care team that needs to know that they're outside the normal boundaries. That's fantastic.
2: Yeah, I can see that uh, being a huge benefit in terms of offloading the amount of work that your care team has to do, kind of integrating some of that into technology and the technological advances. Uh, Do you think it'll play out in terms of benefiting outcomes?
5: Yeah, I, th- I mean, there's clear research evidence that if patients are contacted every day by providers, you can actually pick up on complications sooner, you can decrease readmissions, um, and you can improve their perioperative outcomes. But obviously, that's really resource intense. And I mean, we're all sitting around, how, how many iPads or iPhones are at the table? Tech right. is here. And I think that as physicians, we need to be actively involved, figuring out the way that we're going to integrate that in order to make less work. Right. We need to, I, the electronics can also add to your work. And so you need to think about using them in a sensible way where you're actually streamlining the amount of work that you do. Um, so I think, I mean, it's, it's kind of a fun part of research that I'm really enjoying right now.
1: Um, I saw that, uh, you do a lot of outcomes research, mm-hmm. a lot of outcomes work, and, um, specifically psychosocial, Factors that affect outcomes. Yeah. What do you what What's meant by that, and what kind of things are you are you tracking?
5: I think. I mean, the both the Commission on Cancer and the NCCN have set guidelines for patients with cancer and we should be screening them as surgeons we aren't always but somebody in their care team and often we're the first person that right. sees them yeah. um, should be screening them because there's pretty good data that uh, psychosocial factors meaning depression anxiety all along the spectrum of psychiatric disorders yeah. um, affects patient care and affects outcomes and um, we have not traditionally right. been involved uh, our group actually have uh great research resident um, who spent a lot of time uh, interviewing surgical patients both before and after surgery for cancer, talking to them about kind of their anxieties, how they cope with them, um, and how they should be kind of, you know, facing the process, whether or not surgeons, whether or not they even want their surgeon involved. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it's an interesting question. I don't think we have all the answers. I think we know it affects actually one of the The first presentation in my panel session today, um, the author looked at VA data um, and showed that it clearly, if if there's a diagnosis of an anxiety-depressive disorder, it clearly affects outcomes. Um, But that was a rate of 15%. We know it's higher than that. So we need to probably be more active and aggressive in screening patients.
1: Kind of, and I have a couple. I have a couple questions on that. The first is, and I, I don't know the answer to this. You, you probably, you may, is if there's been, uh, if there's good data that if you treat that, if they have uh, anxiety, or depression, that's then treated, is that does that result in better surgical outcomes? There's you know? not
5: great data, but there are some. There are data from some small series that, yes, if you have um, either treated, whether that's medication treated, whether that's psychotherapy treated, whether yeah. or not that's really just offering support structures um, for the patients that are are dealing with the psychosocial distress, um, there's some evidence that that can be mitigated.
1: It's kind of interesting. I think we're maybe a little bit further along uh, or more progressive with that, with things like bariatric surgery, mm-hmm. where they we we make patients undergo a psychiatric evaluation, um, and treat anxiety, depression before surgery. But it's amazing to me that we haven't really standardized that or addressed that with cancer surgery. Which
5: yeah, especially because there's just a lot of acute um, change in stress level with a with a new yeah. diagnosis, and on a national level, I think that there hasn't been the focus on that that there probably should be.
1: Well, we're also very excited that you're going to be joining. The ranks of uh, fellow podcaster. I hear that you're you're going to with the Association of Women's Surgery. You're about yeah. So my uh,
5: my co chair Stephanie Bonnie and myself have started. um, We've actually recorded our first three podcasts um, with a focus on um, kind of founders in women's surgery and. Uh, some of the role models that we looked up to. Um, so our first podcast, stay tuned. We expect that in the next few months is going to be uh, with Dr. Patricia Newman. Right. Um, and so we're really looking forward to it.
1: What's the? Do you have a name for the podcast yet? Uh, uh, still in development.
5: It, still, still in development. Okay.
1: Well, we promise to promote promote you when it when it is released, and uh, we'll put it out through our social media as well. Excellent. So.
5: Well, we're very happy to uh, collaborate and happy to. Happy to keep talking back and forth.
1: Uh, so, Dr. Yeo, if people want to find you, how do they find you? On Twitter um, is best? Or?
5: I can be found pretty on almost any social media platform. I'm at Heather Yeo MD.
1: Well, it was nice. Thanks for sitting down with us today.
5: Yeah, no problem. Thank you both.
1: All right. Welcome back. We're still at the ASC 2018. We're here with Dr. Herbert Chen. He's the chair of the Department of Surgery at the University of Alabama School of Medicine. And we should note that the UAB has the most abstracts accepted here at ASC this year. How... how How'd you pull that off?
0: Well, we've been close. Uh, When I first started as chair at Alabama in 2015, we weren't in the top 10. We were close. And I challenged our residents, medical students, and faculty to submit abstracts because this is the academic meeting to come to. It's the largest meeting in the world of academic surgeons. And so uh, the following year, we got to number two. And this, this year, there was a lot of Twitter uh, excitement at, around the deadline between us and the University of Michigan. We were going back and forth on abstracts, and they held out and then just announced this morning that we had trounced them. <laughs> and so I'm very proud of our residents and students who put together some fantastic presentations uh, here at the meeting, and I'm uh, running around trying to see all of them. Uh, but it's just fantastic to see this level of engagement. And I challenge all the other institutions to do the same.
2: So I have a feeling that something spectacular must have happened because it definitely takes more than just a challenge. There must have been mentorship. There must have been so many other uh, kind of finite on the granular, granular level things that had happened. Can you elaborate, you know, behind closed doors, what were those meetings like? What did you say? What did you do to inspire this sort of confidence and this sort of endeavor in your students? Well, this leads in a
0: little bit to, I think, the session that I'll be speaking at tomorrow, which focuses on culture and how you can change culture within an organization and within a department. And when I came to UAB, I inherited a fantastic department, a lot of good people, but probably unlike many places, you can within a department, you can have different silos. So we had different silos within our divisions. And when you're so siloed, uh, you without the collaboration and the function, the team functioning, you can't accomplish very much. And so I saw that, and I saw what a great opportunity. If we can bring all these talented silos together, we could be, as many people say, you know, the sum, uh, you know, the sum is greater than all the parts individually. And that's exactly what happened. Is we really concentrated on ways we could bring people all together in the same place to work on the same things, uh, to collaborate not only clinically, research, teaching, and that we would be all much stronger together. And we've had the great fortune that that is actually starting to happen and that we see that uh, we've got all our groups engaged. We've got residents from all our different programs here We have faculty that are uh, multiple faculty on abstracts and have to collaborate together to get there and a lot of mentorship across the board. And so I think that uh, we've gotten more
1: people engaged. So like I said, I think that leads perfectly into your upcoming talk, although i haven 't heard it yet but <laughs> i'm sure that's one of those things that's that's easier said than done you know changing organizational culture uh, how How do you actually do that? Well, I would say that
0: uh, uh, I would invite you to come to my talk, but basically i my talk is based around a book that I read entitled "The Iceberg is Melting" mm-hmm. by Cotter, and it talks about how you uh, You know, the fable, it's a a cute little fable, and it's a very short read, but talks about a group of penguins that are on this iceberg that's melting. And basically, they have to change their way of life from where they stay in one place and eat all the fish in that area to uh, have a more nomadic life where they have to go out, forage, and then move periodically. And so changing that culture... And they use that analogy to uh, tie – what I do in my talk, tie it to a department where you really – first of all, you have to assess sort of what the culture is and then find – create the vision of where you should be. And along the ways, you're going to have these little bumps and so you have to – I don't want to give away my whole talk, but you (laughs) have to have some early wins. You have to basically engage people at all levels, but I think a lot of the mistake when people try to change culture, they try to do it from above, as it really has to come from, you can lead that change uh, as from the front as a leader, but you really need to get everyone engaged at all levels within your department, starting at the most uh, youngest faculty, the residents, the students, and get them to believe that uh, you can be better and this is you want to be, at this other place. And I think uh, that you have to generate trust in people, that your your motivations to do this have their best interest in mind. And we do a lot of things to – we do so many activities to bring us together, so we're just more used to working close together, being close together. We all have – I'm not wearing it today, but you'll see me wear it tomorrow, my UAB jacket, (laughs) which uh, I proudly wear everywhere – And uh, I have my UAB uh, luggage tags, and we have UAB everything. And you'll see tomorrow, um, and maybe you can even play this in this, uh, we have a great uh, UAB video now that really shows, uh, I think, represents that we're a new culture
2: now. So tell us more about what that culture entails. Like, in your eyes, what is the best culture? What are you shooting for? What's your vision?
0: When I thought about what we were capable of vision-wise for our department, we can think classically about, you know, our big missions in academic surgery. We have our clinical mission, the research mission, the education mission, and focusing on those, I really thought that we had the capacity to be one of the highest uh, ranked research departments in the country. And so we really, really made way in doing that and by fostering collaboration, not only within our department, but reaching out across campus, uh, across campus, uh, to all different departments and working together, recruiting, uh, talented surgeon scientists as well as scientists, and then inspiring, uh, medical students and residents to invest in research with their time, take the time out to do the training and to make a, a difference. Because what I try to tell people about, um, uh, I guess the example would be, is we have a whole bunch of talented academic surgeons. And why do people go uh, into academic surgery? I think uh, people go into academic surgery, as a surgeon, you can make a huge difference in a patient's life. You can take someone who's having the worst day of their life, who potentially is on death's door, and with an operation with your hands, you can fix that. And so we uh, derive a lot of gratification from doing that, and that's what drives, I think, a lot of people to go into surgery because you can really make a difference. But what I try to tell our resident students or faculty is that as an academic surgeon, you can clearly make a difference in that one patient's life, and their family's life. But as an academic surgeon, we have the ability to make a difference in the life of someone we've never even met by either, you know, inventing an operation and teaching that to many people, coming up with a new cure through research, teaching the next generation of surgeons to be the best and have the best outcomes. So then they enables them to touch patients that you'll never meet, and uh, that whole process is really what what academic surgery I think is about is to extending. Uh, to help that a patient that you will never never see that could be across the world or another part of the country, and that's sort of what I think inspires all of us to go to work every day, inspires students to go into surgery, inspires residents to become academic surgeons.
1: How do you deal with when you're when you're trying to enact this you know this culture change? Um, and, and maybe you didn't have to address this, but how do you deal with conflict within that if uh, you know not everybody unfortunately is a team player? Um, how do you How do you deal with those difficult situations?
0: Well, I think that when you have a, when you have a great team and you recognize that everyone has their position, mm-hmm. so not everyone is going to be hitting home runs. Uh, some people are going to walk and steal bases some people are going to play in the outfield some people are going to play in the infield and so I think to get across and although we want to make advances in all these bases you don't have to do everything that you can have a role, and that role should be something that you enjoy, something that you uh, really, really want to do, as opposed to me telling you what to do. Right. And so for most people, if you can uh, identify their passion and support them, encourage them, and provide a vision of where they could be, you know, they'll work, uh, you know, a surgeon. It's, it's incredible if you look at the surgical personality That's someone who will work, you know, themselves, you know, as hard as you ask them to work. Now, to so your question focus on, well, what if you have someone who doesn't really believe in that? And I think that's where I think you, uh, the first step is to try to identify something, that, a role for them. And if there's absolutely no role for them, perhaps help them find a role someplace else, which, which they would be happy in. Because, you know, the difficult with, you know, changing a culture is that, uh, you know, as a leader, you hope to get everyone on board and moving the bus in that direction. But there are clearly going to be people who want to get off the bus, and that's okay. I mean, that's not necessarily bad or good because uh, they may have a better fit on a different bus. Yeah, And I think, to be honest, I think too many times we... You know, we keep that person on the bus, and it becomes disruptive and affects uh, everyone else and the positive energy. And sometimes it's better just to be honest and say, "Well, maybe this isn't the best." And then you can still advocate for them to find the right role for them someplace else.
1: Well, whatever you're doing is clearly working. I've heard <laughs> I've heard amazing things about the UAB program, and it certainly shows in the the volume and the quality of the research you guys are producing. So, congratulations on on that. Um, back, to the, back to the meeting, yeah. what, uh, what have you seen so far that's been the most interesting to you this year?
0: Well, I've been here since um, uh, Sunday, so I've had the good pleasure. I've participated in the grant writing course that is sponsored by both the AAS and the SUS, which is something I would encourage for young investigators. And then the second day I participated in the mid-career course which again, I would really, uh, we suggest our faculty to take that when they've reached mid-career to give them some guidance about, you know, how do you take the next step if you're interested in doing leadership. And so far in the day and meeting, we've had some fantastic uh, presentations by not only our residents, but many other residents and uh, trainees. We heard a fantastic uh, presidential uh, talk by Taylor Mm Rial, who I had the privilege of training with as, as a fellow resident. And she gave an inspiring talk and really reminded us about, you know, we work so hard to take care of our patients that we can't—we shouldn't forget about ourselves. And a great talk about wellness and how, in order for us to be the best, we have to take care of ourselves. And uh, tomorrow, I really look forward to uh, the presidential address from Becky Sippel, who um, I had—she was the first uh, resident to be in my lab. At Wisconsin. Very interesting. And she's now given the address as the AAS president. So there's uh, this, the day today has been fantastic. I know tomorrow will be fantastic. Like I said in the beginning, this is the academic meeting to come to for surgeons. Anyone who is an academic surgeon or aspires to be an academic surgeon, this is the place you need to be.
2: And now to close out, what words do you have for Dr. Dimmick of Michigan? <laughs> Oh,
0: Dr. Dimmick and I are really good friends. I just was in the meeting with him. And I know that we've been uh, jabbing each other about who was going to uh, win the abstract competition. (laughs) And uh, if I could take a jab at him, it just follows what happens in the football season this year with Alabama winning another national championship. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: uh, Hope that they can up their
1: game for next year. All right. And that will end it. Thank you, Dr. Ten, for being with us on Behind the Knife. You bet. And that does it for day two of uh, Behind the Knife at the 2018 13th Annual Academic Surgical Congress. Uh, join us again tomorrow where we'll have, uh, we'll sit down with Dr., uh, the president of the AAS, Dr. Rebecca Sippel, uh, Matthew J. Martin, and a few other folks. Until next time, dominate the day.